ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له Indeed all praises for Allah we praise him and we seek his help and we seek his forgiveness and we turn towards him and we seek protection in Allah from the evil of our own actions and from the evil of our own selves because whoever Allah chooses to guide you will find nobody that can misguide him and whoever Allah allows or leaves to go astray you will never find anybody to guide that person nashhadu an la ilaha illallah alwahid alahad and we all bear witness that there is only one God, the one, the one who is alone, the one that is unique in all of his characteristics. And we all bear witness here that Muhammad وسلم, is the messenger of Allah, the slave of Allah, the beloved of Allah, and the coolness of our eyes and the chosen one of Allah. Sallallahu ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. May Allah send his peace and salutations upon the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and upon his family and upon his noble household and his companions. Now, this khutbah that we begin with, um, those of you that attend talks regularly or have ever been to a Jummah khutbah or have ever been to a wedding khutbah or a Eid khutbah, um, you probably heard it many, many times. It's a very common way to start off a talk, start off a dialogue, because it's in the, the practice, the sunnah of our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But just as I was um, sort of preparing the talk, I wondered, because I was in this position, you know, a few years ago when I didn't know Arabic. And it's very common for us to hear like these Islamic words and these Islamic statements, but not really wonder even what they mean. I mean, I suppose we all wonder. It's like uh, so many things in a day that we must wonder. Like, um, you know, I wonder what BMW stands for. Like, has anybody ever wondered that? I'm sure you've wondered it, like even for a split second. Oh, I wonder what it means. I should check it, but then we never do. Does anybody here know what BMW stands for? See, I'm sure we all want to own BMWs, but nobody knows what it means. Same with Islamic like phrases and terminology. We should be using these Arabic phrases and things that we take from the Quran and Sunnah, but we need to have this desire that, you know, if something crosses our mind, we want to go and we want to research it. We want to, you know, improve our knowledge because we can talk all day about seeking knowledge and the virtues of it, but really, really practically, what steps do we take outside of the classroom, outside of the classroom to better ourselves and to learn little things? What does MashaAllah mean? What does, you know, Hasbiallahu wa ni'mal wakil? These things are important because they're going to shape our identity. So inshallah, next time that you listen to this khutbah, whatever, or when you go home, you know, Google it. The world is at our fingertips nowadays. Uh, learn whatever you can because when you come to a talk or when you go to a Jummah khutbah, being able to pick up little words and phrases, it's going to change your life. Step by step, little by little, these are the things that are going to shape you as a person. And these are the things that are going to increase your connection with Allah. Because you can't, you know, somebody that you are in love with, your languages have to correspond. And the language of Allah is Arabic. And if we want to access Allah and access the Prophet we're going to have to take those few steps to learn this language so that we can strengthen our connection. Now, on the topic of khutbas, 
Um, those of you that regularly go to khutbas might have heard this hadith that I'm going to begin with, where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam he said, "Khairu ummati qarni, thumma ladina yalunahum, thumma ladina yalunahum." Does it ring a bell to anybody? Heard this hadith? Yeah. Anybody know what it means? Don't feel shy to shout out. Honestly, don't feel shy at all. That the best of my people, khairu ummati, are who? Qarni, my generation. This is the Prophet talking. That out of all of my followers, the best of them, the elitist of them, are my generation, i.e. the Sahaba. Then those who come after them, i.e. the Tabi'een. So the best three generations, as are often referred to in Islam, the, the first three generations are the best generations because of this hadith. The Prophet ﷺ has sort of given them a stamp of approval that if you want to learn your religion, go back to these three generations, the Sahaba and those who came after them and those who came after them. Now, in uh, Ustad Shabnam's talk, we've learnt about the first generation. We learnt about Abu Darda and his you know, first wife, Ummu Darda al-Kubra, radiallahu ta'ala anhuma. So now we're going to move on to the second generation, the Tabi'een generation. Tabi'een literally it means the followers because they were the ones that followed uh, from the Sahaba. Now, whenever we talk about the companions of the Prophet wasallam, <coughs> when we talk about the companions of the companions, we need to understand the significance of what and who we are talking about. Until we understand their position relative to us, we're never going to fully sort of um, absorb the gems and the lessons that we can take from their life. The Prophet wasallam he said, Ashabi kan nujum, that my companions, my friends, my companions, they are like the stars. And this is, you know, it's a common sort of metaphor. I'm sure you've all used it. We say it about, you know, oh, this child is like a star. Oh, my wife is a star. My husband is a star. Like, what, what does it really mean? And for the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa to say that my companions are like the stars, then surely this metaphor now is sort of gone up a notch. It has a lot of value. It has a lot of meaning. And there's many, many sort of similarities that we can, we can, we can take out, derive between the stars in the sky and the companions of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. I mean, firstly, the stars as we know, or you know, maybe as we don't know, because we don't rely on them as much anymore, but the stars Allah has placed in the, in the heavens as a guide for people. Those of you that go camping and, and you know, have been out to places where there's no light, no electricity, you will know the importance or sort of understand the importance of having the moon and the stars in the sky. Otherwise, the whole of the night sky would just be blanket black. There would be no way for a traveler to be able to decipher, do I go, you know, where's north, where's south, where's east, where, where, where is west? The stars have a massive, massive role in guiding people like they did for, you know, centuries and millennia. Likewise, the Sahaba, without them, we cannot be guided in our everyday life because the deen came to us through them. If Prophet ﷺ is a final messenger of Allah and he is a messenger for all of mankind all the way till the end of time, how is his message from, you know, from where he was, he was 
all the way up until you know 2018 and then 3018 and beyond how is it going to reach all of these people if it isn't through a succession of teacher and student if it wasn't for the foundations that were sown in the time of the sahaba the religion would not have reached us the way that we that it did no alhamdulillah today we have the quran in front of us we have hadith books in front of us this didn't appear these were the investment of people from amongst the Sahaba and the people that came after them. So to compare them to the stars is, you know, nothing short of, you know, a beautiful truth because without them, we cannot be guided. On top of that, the, you know, stars, we know they illuminate the light sky. Likewise, the lives of the Sahaba should illuminate our hearts, illuminate our life. When we learn about the piety and the asceticism and the generosity of Abu Darda and Ummu Darda, does it sort of, um, like, does, does a spark sort of go off inside? That Hang on a second, this is the way that I should be living. This is the way that I should be. Like, does it really make us reflect and does it illuminate our thinking and our minds? Because when that light bulb goes off, you know, these light bulb moments that we have, without them, people don't take action. Yeah, I can sit here and I can talk to you all day, all night about Allah and about the Prophet and about truthfulness and about chastity, all of these things. But until something happens inside of you, inside your heart, you'll never take any sort of action to change your ways. And this is why illumination of the mind and the heart and the soul and this constant process of tazkiyah and self-purification is so, so important. And again, you know, the illumination of the stars is like the illumination of the Sahaba in our life. On top of that, we know the certain different stars, they have different functions to play in, in, in the sort of the, the celestial world. Shooting stars, Islamically we know, they come to repel the shayateen. When the shayateen are trying to uh, rise above the heavens to listen to the conversations of the angels, shooting stars, they come to repel them. And likewise, if it wasn't for the Sahaba and their actions and their faith, we would not really have a strong foundation to repel the misquotations about the Prophet They gave us that firm belief because of their belief in the Prophet because of what they saw and what they believed and the love that he had for them, uh, for, 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 for him. We can now safely say that actually, no, what you're saying about the Prophet is not true because our Sahaba, so many of them, thousands of Sahaba, if you think about the final pilgrimage, we're not talking about a handful of people, we're talking about a massive plane of people, tens of thousands. They are all testimony to the fact that yes, Muhammad was Amin, he was trustworthy, he was truthful, he was XYZ. So they are there to repel the way that the shooting stars, they repel the shayateen. We use the lives and the statements of the Sahaba to repel the, the misquotations about the Prophet Also, those of you that are slightly into astronomy will know that the celestial world that we can see with the naked eye is like barely a drop in the ocean of what is actually out there. Like today, just say tonight, if it was, you know, um, there was no moon, it was a clear night and we all went to look, look out at the night sky. We looked at the stars. Some are twinkling a bit brighter than others. Some are slightly bigger, some are slightly smaller. What we see though, even though on a clear night, the, the, the sky is full of stars, full of stars. But even then, the ones that are invisible, the ones that we don't see are greater in number than the ones that we do see. 
And this is something profound to remember about the lives of the Sahaba, that yes, we have examples of Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali and you know, other Sahaba like we're learning about today, Abu Darda, Umm Darda, but there's so many of them whose names we might not ever know, so many of them whose lives and stories we don't ever know or we will never know because they weren't documented. So many companions fought in the path of Allah, you know, tens of thousands of them. Whereas if we were to ask like a normal, you know, general member of the Muslim public to name Sahaba, you probably can mention about five, six maximum for a general person. Whereas there were tens of thousands of these Sahaba that through them, you know, through their testimony and through their efforts, the deen reached us. So like the stars, the Sahaba that we don't know might even outnumber the Sahaba that we do know. So when we make dua, we make dua for all of the companions, all of the Sahaba. And lastly, the stars, going back now, a little scientific information, but the Big Bang Theory, as you know, you've all probably heard of, if it wasn't for the Big Bang, and you know, the Big Bang is you know, in line with what the Quran mentions as well regarding the origin of creation. If it wasn't for the Big Bang, they say that none of creation could exist because creation was almost nothing. You know, Allah was there, but there was nothing else. And Allah caused the Big Bang to erupt. And through that erupting, i.e. the exploding of stars, we have the Earth, we have Mars, and we have Jupiter, and we have Saturn. Everything that is on this planet, every single thing, the grass and the plants and the trees and the iron and everything that we have underground, the soil, none of this would have been here possible if it wasn't for the exploding of stars back way then, billions of years ago. So when these stars explode, meaning when stars die, it gives way for better and more beautiful things to come out. If the Sahaba hadn't passed away, if they hadn't fought in the path of Allah, if they hadn't given everything that they have, we would not have the deen in its entirety. We wouldn't have these amazing lessons. The same way that if it wasn't for the Big Bang, we wouldn't have iron today. If it wasn't for iron, we wouldn't have had the Industrial Revolution. If it wasn't for the Industrial Revolution, we wouldn't have had electricity. If it wasn't for electricity, we wouldn't be sitting here today in lighting. We wouldn't have our phones. Life today would be, you know, unrecognizable if it wasn't for all of these chain reactions. Likewise, you know, the Sahaba, they are like stars in so many different ways. The Sahaba and those who came after them, remember these three generations. Whenever you hear about a quote or a story about anyone from amongst the Salaf, these three generations, we hold on to it because these are gems and they are stars that are there to guide our way. So, like I said, we've learned a bit about the first generation. So now we're going to move on to the second generation. And I'm going to be talking about a woman. Her name was, according to the majority of, of the scholars, her name was Hujayma bint Huyay. Hujayma was her real name. Some say her name was Juhayma. Hujayma, Juhayma, you know, potato, potato, tomato, tomato, same thing. What she's more famously known as, though, is Umm Darda because she was married to Abu Darda, the famous companion whose life we just heard about. Now, because his first wife was also called Umm Darda, she took on you know, the, the kunya of their child, she became known as the eldest, Kubra, and this one became known as Sughra, meaning the younger one. Now, this Umm Darda, a Sughra, she was raised in the house of Abu Darda as an orphan. And this is an important part of the story because 
you look at the world today, look at the third world, you know, if it's a, a better example, and think about how life was for an orphan child back in the days of Jahiliyyah, even within the early days of Islam. Orphans are those members of society that have nobody. When we think about, you know, Swana, we can, we like complaining a lot and we like being pessimistic and realistic and, you know, we always like feeling sorry for ourselves. But have we ever thought about what it would be like to be a young child that has no mother or father? Because when you have no mother or father, when you have no support, even if your mother and father are, you know, they are uneducated or they have no money at all, they have no, you know, nothing to their name, even if they, it is like that, but the fact that they are there for you, this now gives you a standing in society because nobody can say anything to you now. Nobody can come and, you know, push and shove you around because you've got a mum there, you've got a dad there to look after you, especially a father. Because generally, a person that doesn't have a father, a child that doesn't have a father, they're known as a yatim. And a yatim, linguistically, it means a person that is completely alone by themselves. You can be surrounded by, you know, hundreds of people, hundreds of friends, but not having a father in your life or a mother in your life, you know, it's, it's as if, you know, there's a part of you missing. It's as if you are alone. And unfortunately, it's these kind of people, members of society that people take advantage of, which is why you'll see in the third world, it's the orphans and these people that have no family that are being forced to work on the streets and being forced to do untold things. Because people, you know, think they can take advantage of people that have nobody there to protect them. But Allah sees this and Allah saw this and Allah decided through his wisdom to strike for us an amazing example in the way that our beloved Prophet was raised. Because he was raised an orphan. His father passed away before he was born. But can anybody on the planet today say that Muhammad وسلم, has no honor, that there is nobody there to protect him, where every single day billions of people are sending salutations <coughs> upon him? The honor doesn't come through family, but it helps to have family there. So, like Allah said to the Prophet وسلم, in the Quran in Surah Duha, that, oh Muhammad, don't you remember that didn't we find you as an orphan? You had nobody, but we took you in. We took you in and we sheltered you and we gave you refuge. And like that, Ummu Darda Asuhra, she was born in a society where things could have gone very, very different. As an orphan girl, an orphan child, you know, girls were being buried alive, you know, for, for God's sakes, in that period of time just before Islam. So a, a, a child, a girl that had no father to look after her, you can imagine where, where, where life could have taken them. But Allah chose to protect her and shield her the way that he shielded the Prophet So through the mercy of Allah, she was raised in the house of Abu Darda. And we know the, the, the story of Abu Darda. We know that even outside of Islam and then within Islam, the characteristics that he had and the Prophet وسلم, he said that Anna wa fil And he put up his index finger and his middle finger. That the person that looks after an orphan child, me and him are going to be in Jannah together like this. That it's so close together like this. And he put up his hand. And Allah knows best, maybe this hadith reached Abu Darda, 
Maybe this is one of the reasons that he, you know, took so much care and put so much emphasis into this young girl that was brought into his life, into his home, and he looked after her. And when I say look after, generally speaking, when we think about, um, you know, we want to give charity or we want to do something for orphans, we think about, okay, we need to clothe them, we need to give them money because, you know, there's orphans in the world that have nothing to eat, they have nowhere to live. But we don't think about things like education. Abu Darda didn't just provide her with a house. He didn't just give her a roof over her head. He went above and beyond in shaping what was to become unbeknown to him. He didn't know this at the time. But when he took on this orphan child, she was going to become the master jurist, the master muhadditha of her time. This was going to happen after Abu Darda passed away. But he sowed the seeds that whilst she was in his house, while she was a child in his care, he would make sure that he would take her to the masjid with him. And you know, think about today, let alone you know, our fathers and our husbands and the men in our society, how many of them take the boys to the mosque? How many of them will you see themselves going to Fajr prayer congregation and then taking their sons with them? That look, you know what, I need to be what I want my ch children to be. Like that famous quote from, um, uh, what's his name, Ralpho Waldo, I think. He said famously that what you do speaks so loudly to me that I can't even hear what you say. That you can talk all day long, but your actions are so like deafening to my ears and to my senses that anything else, you know, if you're going to be saying one thing and doing another, it's not going to make any difference to me. That what you do speak so loudly that I can't even hear what you say. And this is a massive lesson because we hear about it all the time. Scientists tell us and psychologists tell us and the Prophet wasallam told us that you have to be the example that you want to see in the world. You have to do what you want your children to do. You need to behave in a way that you, know, you would be proud of your wife and your children and your husband be behaving in such a manner. But we expect that we can be there you know, watching dramas you know 24 7 and we can be there on the phone backbiting about everybody under the sun and we can be there and be very loose with our hijab but when it comes to our children we want them to be you know on the deen we want them to be hafiz and alim and alima we want them to be xyz and we want them to be married to the most pious of women but we've done nothing to make our children like that how can you expect you know a, a woman who is uh good and pious to come into your home when your son doesn't even pray salah and you've done nothing to help your son pray salah you've never woken up him up for fajr but you are there to wake him up for you know college and for school it's us that set the the boundaries it's us that set the example and abu darda he did this with his own children and with this girl who wasn't his own but he took her in as if she was his own so alongside the food and the clothing and, and love that he gave her, he would take her, the narrations mention, that Umu Darda, this girl, Hujayma, she and Abu Darda would pray in the masjid in the same row. Because obviously she was a very young child then. So he would take her, not just take her and then you go, okay, you know, I'm going to go and pray, you go and do your own thing. Like we see so many um, complaints we have every Ramadan, every Tarawih time, that the parents are there praying Tarawih in the masjid and then in the car park, their children are like running havoc and committing crime and doing God knows what. But as long as we're there and we're, we're praying, 
You know, all the time we hear this, this is no joke. We have, you know, in Ramadan, Tarawih time, the parents are inside the masjid, the children are outside the masjid, smoking and free mixing. And because we, we, we need to be looking after them. So he did this. He would take her and she would pray right next to him. You know, the scholars mentioned, and she was young then, didn't even wear a hijab at that time, but he was planting the seed that, you know, this girl, I need to give her education, which is more important and will be more important for her than any food and any, you know, money and any jewelry that I can give her. He gave her education and he used to take her when he himself was, you know, a, a renowned Sahaba. Whenever he would go to a gathering of Quran or dhikr, he would take Ummu Darda, a Sughra, with him. And again, this creates such a, a profound impact on a child. Believe me, that when you take your child to the masjid, and when you take your child to, to gatherings where there's religious people, this is going to affect them in such a way that you can't really do that once they're post, you know, 15, 16, 17. Because we have, honestly, we have heard sisters that come to a sufa and they're like, when I was a child... I didn't know anything about religious people. My parents never prayed. I, didn't, I knew that I was a Muslim, but I didn't know anything else. On the contrary, I used to think religious people were X, Y, Z, because all I ever saw were the people with the beards and the people with the scarves doing the worst sins in society. So because people only see that side, how can you expect us, like as humans, you can't love that which you've seen your whole life to be negative, if all you've ever seen are people who say they are Muslim and kind of look like they're Muslim, but they don't act like Muslim, then of course you're going to grow up, you know, with a sort of aversion inside that, hang on a second, this religion is, is not what it's cut out to be. You have to take your children, you have to go yourself as well, because it will soften your heart, but take them to people that, are, that you perceive to be pious. Take them to the masjid, just being in the masjid environment Believe me, you know, and the masjid is free at the moment, alhamdulillah. It's not like you have to pay uh, £30 an hour A-level tuition that we do for our children. And we do so without, you know, even battering an eyelid because we're worried about their dunya, but we're not worried about their character. That, you know, having a degree is nothing if you can't even be nice to, to the waiter. Having, you know, being a doctor is nothing if you can't even treat your wife with kindness. That these titles, Allah is not going to ask you how many times does Allah tell us in the Quran that he's going to look at your hearts? He's going to look at what kind of people you are. The Prophet said that I have only been sent to perfect good character. I haven't been sent as you know, anything else, but just to make you better people. And unfortunately, it's not always something that comes naturally. In a society that we live in, it's glorified to be vain and to be narcissistic and to be greedy the people that are that have the most money and the people that are the prettiest and the people that take you know the most selfies and have the most followers on instagram we slowly start to think of them as being successful and believe me as sort of the the older generation i don't know if i should be putting everybody in that but you know what i mean asla as opposed to the very young generation believe me there is a difference of the sky and the earth when it comes to the way that we were raised up and the way they are being raised today. Because the, the, the way that the 21st century is evolving, the, with the advent of the internet, you can't even compare 
the challenges that we went through, and we did, we went through challenges, but what they have today, believe me, is so difficult. It's not enough to shout and scream at them and like, why can't you pray? Why can't you put on your headscarf? It's not something that's gonna come naturally to a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old, who all they've ever seen is the internet and the glorification of celebrities. It's something that is very difficult to break out of, especially if you're not getting it in the home. We cannot tell them off because it is something that is outside of their control. They are being bombarded with things that we weren't bombarded with. They are seeing things on the internet, free access that we weren't really seeing unless you kind of went out your way. But now it's everywhere. They did a, you know, we didn't really have phones when we were younger. Now every child does. It's opened up the world for them. So we can't blame them when things go wrong if we haven't sort of taken the time to, to, to put those seeds in them. And the Prophet ﷺ, he was similar, very, very similar. He would never, ever discourage somebody taking their children to the masjid. We know from certain hadith where the Prophet ﷺ would be in sujood. So he'd be praying and he's, who is he? He's the, the, the leader of all mankind. And he was the imam of the sahaba that were praying behind him. And he's there in sajda. And his grandchildren, Hassan and Hussein, are climbing on his back. And he's staying there so that, you know, he doesn't want to get up in case they fall off. So, you know, the leader of mankind, Sayyidul Alameen, is staying in sujood because of the, the welfare and kindness to children. He himself, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, said that when I begin my salah in the masjid, my intention is that I'm going to make the, the recitation long. But then I'll hear a child crying. And so I read a shorter surah because I don't want to harm the mother because the mother's praying, she must be worried about her child. So I want to make things easy for her. This was rahmatul lil alameen. This was a mercy to all of mankind. That's what he came as. And now we see, and we see all the time, believe me, even amongst the religious gathering, when children are making the slightest bit of noise in the masjid, it's like, what are you doing here? Why did you have children? Why have you brought them here? Like, sister, stay at home, stay at home. Unbeknown to you, this mother is trying her best to raise her child in an Islamic environment and you're here just worried about yourself. She's the one that's going through the hardship of bringing him and then packing the, the bottles and the nappies and God knows what. And she's trying her best for her child to, to be raised as a good Muslim because where else can you take a child if not for the houses of Allah? But we made it so difficult. We need to be very, very you know, particular, and I know sometimes, you know, you're trying to listen to a talk and you can't hear because of the children, and maybe it's frustrating because you're really trying to benefit, but believe me, the benefit that you'll get through showing patience and love and kindness and encouraging these young mothers to continue coming, continue bringing your children to the masjid is going to be greater for you in reward than anything that you could have taken from the imam, taken from the speaker, but you've got this arrogance and this hardness in your heart. It's going to be of no benefit. So we need to really, you know, take it easy on other people when we see them trying their best. Sister doesn't wear a hijab or she started wearing a hijab and it might not be covering, you know, her hair properly. You know, her ankles might still be showing, the wrists might still be showing, but she's trying, you know, we need to give people a bit of slack, give them a bit of time, give them encouragement because you don't know what one word, what one statement that you say to somebody could change their day. Like, you know, how many of us here are there today? I don't know what kind of homes you've just come from. 
Some of you might have just come from, you know, the middle of a party. Some of you might have come in the middle of a fight. Some of you might have, you know, family problems at home, husband problems, children problems. You're strongly fi financially, you're struggling. Allah knows best what everybody's story here is. Allah knows it. We don't know it. So now we're going to come and we're going to start treating people harshly in the houses of Allah. Then what kind of example are we setting for, for people that are going to come after us? So we need to be careful, like Ummu Darda, you know, Allah knows best. It's not always enough to be raised in a, um, in a good household for a person to come onto the deen. We've known, like Ustada Alima, the verse that she read right at the beginning, was look at the examples of the wife of Lut, who was a prophet. So imagine the character of a prophet. You're not going to get anybody that was better in characteristic than a prophet of Allah, because that's why he was chosen as a prophet. But in that household, wives and sons and children still didn't accept Islam. Sometimes it isn't, you know, you as a mother and a father, yes, you have to do your best because Allah is going to ask you about it. But even sometimes after doing your best, you have to understand that guidance comes from Allah. So you do your best and you teach them with love and you teach them with care. But it's no guarantee, no guarantee that the way that you are is how your children are going to turn out and vice versa. How many people are there that were raised in the household of kuffar, the household of non-Muslims that are the best of society today? Like the Sahaba, they were reverts to Islam. They were raised in households where alcohol and drinking and adultery and idol worship was so common. But they are the people that Allah says in the Quran that I am pleased with these people and they are pleased with me. So look at this, you know, environment doesn't, isn't the be-all and end-all of everything. It has to come from within. So Abu Darda radiallahu anhu, he tried his best with this orphan child that he was looking after. He tried his best in terms of education to plant those seeds. So Ustada Shabnam has already mentioned this, but I'm going to mention it again because it's such a beautiful hadith. And because we're talking about Umm Darda, Abu Darda is the narrator of this hadith where he said, you know, the, the Sahaba Kathir bin Qais radiallahu anhu, he says that I was sitting one day with Abu Darda and a man came to him and he said, oh Abu Darda, I've come to you from Medina. So Abu Darda at this moment in time is sitting in Damascus, which is in Syria. And Medina is approximately, um, I don't know, 1400 kilometers away in Saudi Arabia. If you were to drive there, it'd probably take you about 14 hours non-stop driving. Not a close, like the different countries. So you can imagine traveling on a camel and, you know, back in the day how difficult it was that this man that's come from Medina to Damascus, why has he come? What, what's the point? Medina is the city of the Prophet. What's the need for you to come to Damascus? So he comes and Kathir bin Qais, he's sitting there and he sees this man coming and he says to Abu, Abu Darda, that, oh, Abu Darda, I've come to you from Medina, the Medina of the, the Prophet وسلم, because I've been told that you have a hadith that you heard from the Prophet So Abu Darda's like, hang on just a second. You've come from Medina to hear one hadith from me. And he's like, yeah. He goes, no. Like, have you come here like maybe to sell something or even buy something or anything to do with business? He goes, no, nothing. I have not come here for any business purpose. So Abu Darda's like, hang on a second. This doesn't sound right. 
You've come to Damascus from Medina for this hadith. No other reason, like, I don't know, maybe, do you have friends here? Are you here to see a friend? Are you here to, I don't know, go sightseeing? Any other reason apart from this hadith? He's like, no, I swear by Allah, no, that's the only reason I've come here. So Abu Dharra's like, okay. Then he narrates the hadith to him. You know, such a beautiful hadith. We've probably heard snippets of it. Um, you know, whenever we hear about gatherings of seeking knowledge, this is the most famous hadith. And Usada Shabnam's already translated it, so I'm not going to translate all of it. But in this hadith, Abu Darda radiallahu anhu, he says, that I heard the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam saying, Man salaka tariqan yaltamisu bihi ilman. That whoever treads one path, one road, whoever leaves their house and takes one step because of seeking knowledge, sahalallahu lahu tariqan ilal jannah. That Allah is going to make the path and the road to Jannah easy for that person. And here we're not talking about, you know, like what is a student of knowledge? Is it somebody that's like an alima or a mufti or a maulana? No, we're talking about any one person like you and me that have left our houses today at some point, intending we're going to come to a sufa. We're going to learn one thing about Ummu Darda. Allah knows best what your intentions were to come here, but it was to learn something, to take some benefit. So as a student of knowledge, Abu Darda is telling this man that, look, you've come from Medina. Some of you here have come from Salihal, I think, Alam Rock, Bozigbin, wherever you've come from. But that one path that you take in seeking knowledge, Allah has promised that he's going to make the road to Jannah easy for you. Some of you might be thinking, and I'm sure those of you that have studied any sort of Islamic studies, we'll probably be thinking, hang on a second, that doesn't sound right. Because generally what happens is as soon as you start doing something good, as soon as you start seeking knowledge, problems are going to come your way. So then how do we understand this hadith? I mean, I've heard it so many times, people, you know, classmates that I used to study with, with would say that our lives were fine. As soon as we started the Tajweed class, as soon as we started the Reverts class, as soon as we started the Anima course, it's like there's so many problems like, that are coming here and there and there. What does this mean? But Allah has said that he's going to make the path to Jannah easy for you. That doesn't mean, Allah didn't say that he's going to make the dunya easy for you. The path to Jannah is the path of difficulties. So when you are enrolled on any sort of course, if it's difficult for you to come out to talks like this, it's difficult for you to go and learn your, your religion. It's difficult for you, but you keep on going. You drag yourself out of bed and you do your thing and you try and convince your family. All of this is a manifestation of this hadith. Because Allah has said he's going to make the path to Jannah easy for you. That's why he's giving you these problems. Because the path to Jannah is full of problems and trials and tribulations. Like the hadith mentions, that a believer of Allah, he will not remain on this dunya until Allah has cleansed him of all of his sins through trials and tribulations. Now look at the, the perception, look at the mentality that Allah is going to test you because he wants you to come on the day of judgment without any sin. So he's going to give it to you all in the dunya. And it might seem harsh. It's hard when we're going through it. It's very, very difficult to be in a situation like a situation of poverty to be in a situation of family problems and this problem and societal problems and in that moment of time to take a step back and think, hang on a second, I need to be strong. 
Allah is testing me. Allah wants me to get through this. Allah only tests those people that he loves, which is why the prophets of Allah went through the hardest problems that you can not even imagine the test that they went through. So we need to, at that moment in time, think about these things. That yes, it's going to be difficult, but the path to Jannah is going to be difficult, which is why, you know, the path to Jahannam is very, very easy. You know, eat and drink and, you know, have affairs and take drugs and, you know, do all of these things that people like doing for some reason in the dunya. And it's fine because the path to Jahannam is supposed to be easy. But it's like, you know, if you're going to, um, I don't know, you're going to Buckingham Palace. You know, think about the, the roads in London how you have to get through them, and then you have a stop here, and you have a toll here, and then you have security checks here. Because you're going somewhere of value. Whereas if you're going somewhere like uh, Bosley Green, which is where I'm from, it's like, yeah, the roads are all clear. Because nobody wants to go there. It's the same with Jannah. It's going to be difficult because everybody wants to get there, and that what is in there is more valuable than anything that we can have in the dunya. Which is why on the Day of Judgment, when the believer enters Jannah, and we're talking about that believer that had it the worst in this life. I can't even give you an example, but you know, today maybe think about somebody that's living in Burma, somebody that's been, I don't know, born in a concentration camp, somebody that's been born in poverty, somebody that's been born without a mother or a father, somebody that's been forced to sell you know, their body for, 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 for food, somebody that's tortured, somebody that's been through things that we can only sort of think about as stories because they're not real to us. But this happens in the dunya in the 21st century. It's happening to people right now. People are being raped and looted in the name of, you know, because they're Muslim. This is happening to people. Villages are being burnt in that part of the world because they're Muslim. So a person like this, a person that's had it so tough in the dunya is going to come on the day of judgment. And when they put one foot inside of Jannah, Allah is going to say to them, you know in your life, that dunyawi life that you lived, did you ever experience any pain? And the person will be like, no. Pain? What pain? Because one step into Jannah, all of that will be forgotten. All of it will be forgotten because the aim is to get there. Not anything that we leave behind, but the struggle is to recognize tests. That when you're going through problems, still say Alhamdulillah. That Allah, thank you for giving me a test whilst I am a Muslim. You know, imagine the, the, the faith that must come through doing something like that. So, uh, so, moving on then to, so this was the general sort of upbringing of, uh, of Hujayma bin Tuhye. She was raised as an orphan in the, in, the, in the house of Abu Darda. When she became like a young adult, again, she had this yearning for seeking knowledge because of what Abu Darda had instilled in her, taking her to the mosque and getting her to meet Sahaba and getting her to meet ulama. She herself was not a Sahaba because the definition of a Sahaba is a person that lived and met the Prophet in the time of the Prophet So anyone that came af after that is not in that category. So this young woman, because she met Abu Darda and she met so many other Sahaba like Salman Farsi and she met uh, Aisha and she met Abu Huraira. She met all of these companions. That's why she's from the second generation. So when Umm Darda al-Kubra, the one that we heard about before, when she passed away, Abu Darda decided to get married again. 
And the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ again comes to mind because the Prophet ﷺ himself was an orphan and he gave so much motivation to people to look after orphans, especially the girls, knowing what sort of hardships that they would go through in their life without having someone to look after them. So in some hadith, like the one that I mentioned, the Prophet ﷺ would say to people that look after the orphans because on the day of judgment, I'm going to be with you like this. Because you've, you know, every time you look after an orphan or every time you sponsor an orphan in Syria or, you know, Pakistan or Kashmir, you know, it's as if you are sponsoring a legacy of the Prophet ﷺ. That we love orphans, yes, because they, they, they have nobody else and they are orphans. But more than that, we should love orphans because our Prophet ﷺ was an orphan. That in itself is enough for us to know that their status, even before they have done anything of worship, is higher than our status. Because Allah has chosen them to be at a level with the Prophet So in other hadith, the Prophet used to encourage the companions that look, if you're going to look after an orphan, look after the female orphans, bring her up and give her a good upbringing and then marry her. This kind of person is going to have a special recognition and a special standing with me on the day of judgment. So imagine that you now, not only are you looking after orphans, but he's saying to the male companions that go that one step further, take in this child, somebody else's daughter, that you didn't have to, but take her in and treat her, you know, like, like one of your family and do her upbringing and do whatever you can, give her the education that you give to your, to your other family members. And then when she reaches an age where she is married, of married, uh, maritable age, then you marry her because you have provided her with love and comfort. And now for you to marry her is sort of it seals the deal. And this is what Abu Darda radiallahu anhu, he did with this young girl, Juhayma. She was obviously now an adult. So after Umud Darda al-Kubra had passed away, he married Umud Darda al-Sughra. And this marriage only sort of lasted about two years. It's about two years we know from the, the, the history timeline that after about two years, maybe slightly longer, maybe slightly shorter, Abu Darda radiallahu anhu himself passed away. So this Ummu Darda, with the time that she had with Abu Darda as a husband, as, as well as all the time that she had with him as a caretaker and a guardian, she absorbed everything that she could from this man. And Ummu Darda al-Sukhra, we have many many narrations from her because of Abu Darda but not only because of him and this is something that's you know important to remember because before I, I start and go on to the next part we're going to have to have a slight lesson on the science of Usulul Hadith the, the science of Hadith for us to truly understand how significant this Ummu Darda al-Sughra became to be in the life of you know scholarship so when it comes to hadith, we know that the Prophet ﷺ, as a prophet, he lived for 23 years. So within these 23 years of prophethood, everything that he did, everything that he said, everything that, you know, the way that he walked and talked and, you know, every part of his life, we need to know because that is what our religion is going to be based on. We've got the Qur'an, 
Everything to do with the sunnah is going to come from these 23 years. So the people that Allah chose to be around the Prophet ﷺ for these 23 years were the Sahaba. So now everything that they saw from him, when they had a problem, they went to him. When they needed to learn something, they went to him. When he was in the masjid, they heard from him. When he was praying salah, they listened to him. All of these little things now, piece by piece, they're coming together. They are learning and they are going and telling other people. And then those people are going and telling other people that, did you know? So you see somebody doing wudu and they're like, no, no, I've just come from the masjid and the Prophet ﷺ, he said, do wudu like this. Wash your face this number of times. So now they're teaching it to the next person and the person's like, oh, okay. Goes home, tells his wife. The wife tells the children. The children go to school. They tell other people. So it was a very sort of open, uh, open plan science that everything that the Prophet ﷺ was doing now all of the people around him are learning word to mouth. So he is the teacher and they are all students in some capacity. Now after these 23 years are, are over, when, the, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decides to take the Prophet to him, now the sunnah now comes to an end because the sharia was based on the Prophet and the wahi, the Quran that was being revealed. So now after 23 years, that's it. All of the, the, the knowledge that we're going to have about the Prophet ﷺ had to come from those 23 years. And remember, writing things down was not common in that day and age. It was, it was rare. I mean, when the Prophet ﷺ was born in the city of Mecca, there were probably around five people that could read and write. The Arabs weren't great on education. It wasn't something that they thought it important to teach their children. So later on, when the Prophet ﷺ, he came and Allah revealed verses like Walqalam, Allah taking an oath by the pen, Iqra, read in the name of your Lord, we began to understand the importance of knowledge, the importance of, of seeking knowledge, etc. So slowly, slowly, people are beginning to learn how to read and write, etc. But it still wasn't like mass scale. Generally speaking, the Arabs, they learned through word of mouth, through the oral tradition. So now a time comes when the Prophet ﷺ has passed away. Now the Sahaba are getting older. Whilst they're there, the Sunnah is still alive because they are the best people to understand Arabic, to understand the Quran, to understand the Sunnah. So they're teaching people and Islam is spreading at the same time. We're going from Saudi Arabia up to Syria, up to Jordan. We're going east into Persia. We're going west into, you know, Greece and Africa, etc. So Islam is spreading. It's not as if the Muslims remain stagnant. Now thousands of people are coming in. Where are they going to get the religion from? They need to find teachers. Who's going to teach them the religion? Come to Medina if you can, come and learn from the Sahaba. And those people then go back to their hometowns. And, you know, it continued like that, teacher and student across the Arabian, you know, uh, across the Islamic world. Then people began to realize that, hang on a second, we were falling into problems because as Islam is spreading outwards to the non-Arabs, these non-Arabs can't really understand the Arabic language. So number one, they need to be taught Arabic because Arabic is the language of the Quran. And number two, when we are teaching them, because they don't have a full understanding of the Arabic language, there's, they're falling short in understanding. So now we began to realize the importance of writing things down, that the Sahaba are slowly passing away. They're getting older, they're dying. And now the, the, the students of the Sahaba, which are the Tabi'een, they're doing what they can and teaching the people. But again, they're getting older, they're dying. 
We need to have something written down that is going to be concrete and there for the rest of the people to be able to take from in its original form. So this is when the, the sciences of hadith and fiqh being written down really began to take form. And with the writing down of hadith, you can imagine it's important not just to write the hadith down, but we need to know where you got that hadith from. Because I can say to you today, uh, I can give you any sort of quote that, oh, did you know that Abraham Lincoln said, twinkle, twinkle, little star. And you'll be like, oh, wow, Abraham Lincoln said that. But you need to ask me, where did I get it from? And I'll tell you, yeah, I got it from Mashuda. And Mashuda got it from Humpty Dumpty. And Humpty Dumpty got it from so-and-so. There needs to be some sort of recognition that the knowledge that I'm giving you, what I'm saying to you right now, is true because I can make it up. I might have like a bias. I might have, you know, a bad memory. I might have, you know, all sorts of problems with me. Not might, I do have all sorts of problems, but... In the science of hadith, understand it's important to know where the hadith is coming from. So now there's a shift in understanding. Now when a person would come and they'd say to a student that the Prophet said, the person is going to be like, okay, who told you that? And he'd be like, oh, um, Umar bin Khattab told me. Okay, who told Umar? Abu Huraira told him. Oh, who told Abu Huraira? He heard it from the Prophet So now we've got the concept of a chain. So if I'm saying something, and then, you know, Sister Zainab is listening, and Zainab goes and tells her mom, and then her mom goes and tells her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law goes and tells... We've started off a chain, because I am saying the, the wording, which is the matan, and now all of you are part of this chain. You're part of a sanad. You know, it's beautiful if you think about it, because every word that you hear now from a teacher... Every word that you hear, whether the teacher is like a, a proper teacher or whether it's somebody like me, whether it's somebody, you know, on YouTube, everything that you hear from them now, you've started this chain reaction and that can't ever be broken. I can't teach you something and then take it back from you. I can't. It's an irreversible process. So now there's a link between teacher and student that is that can never go, that is never broken, which is why it's so important to have good teachers, good students, etc. But that's, you know, a different topic. So now, the science of hadith, we need to know where are we getting these hadith from. And, you know, the people in the chain, the stronger the people in the chain, remember, the stronger the hadith is going to be. So, for example, Usada Shabnam says to you, um, there are five salahs in a day. And then you're like, okay, who told you? And she goes, oh, my teacher, um, Sheikh Zahir, told me. And then who told Sheikh Zahir? Oh, his teacher, so-and-so, going all the way back, all the way back to the Prophet And you know that Ustad Shabnam is an alima, and you know that Sheikh Zahid is a sheikh, and you know that you know, all of his teachers were, were scholars. You're like, okay, this, this hadith has a lot of value. Now, obviously, it can't be wrong. And then you might have another hadith where I say to you, you know, there's four salahs in a day. And you're like, okay, who did you hear that from? And I'm like, I heard it from uh, my teacher, Mr. Brown, <laughs> or whatever. And so you're like, hang the second. You don't know anything yourself. You can't speak Arabic. You're a nobody. Your teacher was a nobody. Obviously, what you're saying, we're not going to accept. So the people in the chain are very important. And the science of hadith, you know, it's a massive, massive topic. But the muhaddith, the, the person who studies hadith, he looks at every single hadith. 
and then he looks at every single chain and then he looks at every single person inside that chain and then he looks at the life of that person and he looks at their characteristic and he looks at their understanding and he looks at who their teachers were, who their students were, where they lived, where they were born, where they died. It's a massive science because we're not going to take any word of anybody. If you are saying to us that the Prophet said X, Y, Z, we need to know where you got it from. And this is how the science of you know, Ulum al-Hadith was created. Now, Abu Darda al-Sughra, rahimahullah ta'ala, has a very, very important status in the science of Hadith. Because people would come from far and wide just for the fact that she was narrating a hadith. And remember, at her time, obviously she was a tabi'in, but there were so many other tabi'in as well. They were the second generation. They were all good. They were all pious. They were all, we accept all of them. But again, amongst the sahaba, certain sahaba were above others. Amongst the tabi'in, certain tabi'in were above others. And Ummu Darda, not only was she known for her extreme intellect, very, very intelligent, because, you know, part of intelligence is natural, it's something that comes from Allah, and now we know from science that intelligence comes from the mother, so, you know, the men, there's no men here, but if men were here, I'd tell them, marry an intelligent wife, because that's what your children are going to be like, women, just be intelligent yourself, uh, you know, stimulate the neurons in your brain, go out, seek knowledge, this is going to benefit your children. She was intelligent herself because of the way that she was, but on top of that, because her caretaker, Abu Darda, put so much emphasis, you can't, you know, which is why we send our children to tuition, because you know that a person can be taught, that a person might not have uh, a great start to life, but they've got potential, so take them to a teacher, you know, get them to do their, I don't know, 11 plus, and their this and their that, and they're going to improve, their memory will improve and things like that, so she was very intelligent anyway. She sat with the people of dhikr, with the people of the Qur'an, and then she had this yearning for knowledge because her husband, remember, was the one that narrates so many hadith about seeking knowledge. Of course, she had that love and that desire. And then, you know, being married to him, and then she's learning hadith from him, and then people are coming to him, and they're seeking knowledge, and then she's listening. It created this amazing atmosphere in their household, an amazing atmosphere of knowledge of ilm and the importance of knowledge. So, Umm Darda, later on when she goes on to narrate hadith, people would be like, okay, we've got the same hadith, just imagine it's the same hadith that the Prophet said that there's five salahs in a day, that you've got one chain where there's Abdullah and Umar and Abu Bakr and all of these people, and there's another chain where there's you know, Abu Darda and there's Umm Darda and then there's this person, that person, that person. Because Umm Darda became known for her extreme intellect and her extreme piety, more than anything, her piety, the later students that would come, the later scholars that would come, they would be like, you know what, if this hadith has Umm Darda in the chain, we are going to take it, and this is stronger than any other hadith that we have. And this is why, you know, there's much that can be said, but, you know, Imam al-Dhahabi is one of the, the masters of hadith that we have. And if a person wants to learn about um, the, the most elite of scholars, he's got a book that is called Tadkiratul um, Khufad. And in this book, he's listed like the biographies of not only like good scholars, but those scholars that reached such a level that they were known to be like, I don't know what you'd call them, like golden scholars. 
They had to have memorized at least 300,000 hadith. They had to have an excellent understanding of the religion. They were people that were, like literally, if you can think of, you know how you have the Forbes, like top 10, top 100 successful people in the world. Imam Dhabi's book is like that, that the best, you know, muhaddithat and muhaddithun in, in the world, he's listed them there. And in the first generation, in the generation of the Sahaba, who does he put as number one? Aisha radiallahu anha. And in the second generation, who does he put as the highest of the hadith narrators and you know, teachers? Ummu Darda al-Sughra. That was an amazing testament to a woman that was raised, that was born as an, as an orphan. And now she spent two years of married life with this man. And she went on to become a teacher to so many people, not just women, Men would come from all corners of the Islamic world to come and learn from her. Men would be in awe as to her piety and her asceticism. And back to her piety. I told you that she was married to Abu Darda for about two years. Now, when the time came for Abu Darda to pass away on his deathbed, you know, she had an amazing love for her husband, naturally, because, you know, he was a good person. And we love people that are good. And he had raised her and he had, you know, given her so much. And then on top of that, he married her and he was an amazing husband to her. And she respected him as a teacher more than anything. So imagine that. It's like, not only am I marrying, you know, the man that I love, but the, this man that I love is also my teacher. Like, you know, it's like in the jackpot. And so when he came to pass away, she said to him, that, oh, Abu Darda, in this dunya, you proposed to me and I married you. But now the time is coming for you to go. I am asking you by Allah that I want to propose to you now and I want to make Allah the wakil that when it comes to Jannah, allow me to be your wife. So Abu Darda radiallahu anhu, he says to her, well, is, that, is that what you want really? She goes, yeah, that's what I want. I don't want to have any other husband in Jannah except for you. So he says to her, okay, don't marry after me in that case. Because of a hadith that Abu Darda himself narrates that a woman is going to be married in Jannah to the last one of her husbands. So just say a woman had, you know, she was married and then she got divorced and then she got married and divorced again and then she got married and then when she passes away, that husband now is going to be her husband in Jannah according to this one narration of Abu Darda. So according to him now, he says to her that, look, if that's what you want, don't get married after me. She goes, fine. I am going to try my hardest after you, after you pass away, I am going to exert myself in worship. And then when the time comes in Jannah and I come and I approach you and I present myself to you, are you going to say yes to me? And he goes, yes. By Allah, I'm going to say yes to you. That, you know, do all of this. That I'm not going to be here anymore. But Umar Darda, look, I've given you the tools. I've tried my best in my capacity. And now do what you can don't limit yourself that now you're going to be, you know, a widower, you're going to be, um, sorry, a widow, you're going to be, you know, somebody that's, you know, and we know even in our culture today, that person who doesn't have a husband or is single or is divorced or widowed, you know, we think that, oh, what a poor, poor woman, that she's got nothing, she's a nobody. So Abu Dada is telling her, no, after me, you do whatever you can in the dunya, achieve your potential, because he saw the potential in her. And then you do that and you do that and you serve Allah. And then in Jannah, inshallah, we will be united. We will be reunited. And so that's exactly what she did. You know, after these, you know, two years of marriage, she went and she, you know, stuck to her word 
like to the T. You cannot say that there was any sort of lacking in the life of Umm Darda al-Sughra. She would spend her time between the teaching of knowledge and the seeking of knowledge. She would spend her life, the rest of her life now, and she died at a very old age, which is why, again, one of the reasons why we take her as such a, a massive inspiration as a Hadith scholar is because of the long life that Allah blessed her with. So she saw so many people. She, you know, witnessed, I mean, let's think, Abu Darda radiallahu anhu died in the Caliphate of Uthman. After Uthman came who? Ali. After Ali came who? Hassan. After, we're talking about Khalifas now. So Uthman was a Khalifa, then Ali was a Khalifa, then Hassan, then Muawiyah, and then his son, Yazid. And then Yazid's son, um, what's his name? Yazid's son. It's one I got in my head. Marwan. And then Marwan's son, Abdul Malik, and she passed away in that Caliphate. So she lived a very long life and she saw it all when it came to the dunya. She saw the rise and fall and everything. So as a student and a teacher, she became known, like I mentioned, she became known as, for her piety. That was like number one. This is a woman of piety. She is so, and subhanAllah, what are we known for? Like honestly, if you think about it, if a person was to describe me in one word, you know, or they've got one sentence to describe me, they're not going to say, oh, Sophia is pious. I very, very much doubt it. You know, just imagine the, the, what kind of a person you'd have to be for somebody to say regarding you that we think this is a God-fearing woman. We think this is a pious woman. These are like loose phrases. These are massive, massive testimonies that a person looks at you and they remember Allah. That a person sits with you and they fear Allah. That a person is, you know, in your gathering and they remember Allah and the Prophet It's not easy to build up a characteristic and a personality like that. But this is what she became known for. So you can just imagine, even though we don't have massive details about her life, if this is what the people who know her best knew her as, as a God-fearing, pious woman, then just imagine what her prayers were like. Imagine what her fasting was like. They mentioned her, her students that we never once entered the house of Umar Darda and not found her in prayer. And, you know, regarding herself even, she mentions that to me, the best form of worship is recognition of Allah. Very, very ascetic. She would spend, you know, hours and days and times just doing dhikr of Allah. And once one of her students, his name was Aun, you know, male student, he said to her, so they were, you know, sitting maybe in a gathering like similar to this, minus all of the, the, you know, I mean, just look at this building. They didn't have anything like this then. But they were sitting in a gathering and she's narrating to them and she's teaching them and she looks tired. You know, remember she's getting older and, you know, there's a bit of weariness on her face and she's sort of leaning back. And so her student says that, Ya Umar Darda, like, are we making you tired? Like, do you want to stop? Are you, are you tired? And she goes, you making me tired. That believe me, oh student, I have sought worship in every single thing. And I have not found anything that is more peaceful to my heart than sitting with the people of knowledge and discussing Allah with them. That when it comes to worship, believe me, there is nothing better you will not find the sukoon and the peace and the tranquility for people whose hearts are open. 
than sitting in gatherings like this and remembering Allah and going to gatherings of dhikr and remembering Allah, sitting with the ulama, the people of knowledge, and just discussing something basic like wudu with them, just discussing the adhan with them, just discussing history and fiqh and aqidah with people, the peace that it brings to your heart, this ma'rifah and recognition, she goes, I've done everything. And believe me, there is nothing that I find better for my heart and for my nafs than sitting with the people of knowledge. So no, no, you're not tiring me. And no, I'm not tired. Let's continue. And she did this. And because she was known for this sort of piety and asceticism, and she became known for her beauty as well. Remember, it wasn't, she wasn't like um, your normal sort of average looking person even. She was a woman of extreme beauty. But that sort of sideline, because that isn't what's important. That isn't the main thing. We're not, we don't remember her for her beauty. That's sort of mentioned as a side point in the books. What we remember her for is for her relationship with Allah, for her piety and her asceticism and for the, the knowledge that she gave us. So as a God-fearing woman and as a teacher, that came first. But we also know that she was beautiful. Whereas if it was the other way around, how many people have walked this dunya that had the best skin and the best body and the best hair, but nobody remembers them. We don't know their names because beauty is not something that is gonna you know, create a legacy. Beauty isn't something that people are gonna make dua for you after you die. It's something that you're gonna leave in the hearts of the people and that is not beauty. This is, you know, Allah gives beauty and beauty is not society's standards of beauty. Beauty is a light that Allah puts on the faces of people, that Allah puts in the hearts of the people. And where does that light come from? Allah tells us that ilm is nur, knowledge is light. And you will, I'm sure you, you will have noticed that you know when you go to, you know, these old people that are, you know, Molanas and Alimas and they are so old and they have grey hair and they are so wrinkled and they are, you know, I, I don't know, not society's standards are beautiful, obviously, because they're past their youth now, but there is such a beauty on, you, on their face that you think, you know, subhanAllah, I could just look at you all day long. That's what beauty is, what Allah puts on the face and what Allah puts in the heart. So that's what she had, her piety and her, her knowledge. And then on top of that, she was known to be a very beautiful woman as well. She had the, the Jamal and the Husn. So consider this. After Abu Darda passed away, and as she's made this oath to him, that look, I'm proposing to you. So just remember, in Jannah, we're going to get married. And then who comes and knocks on her door? And who proposes to her? The most successful man on the face of the Islamic world at that time, which was Muawiyah, the son of Abu Sufyan, who was the Khalifa of the Umayyad dynasty. His empire ruled from Arabia to Syria, extended to Africa throughout his lifetime. He was the president, he was the king, he was the prince, he was whatever you want to call him. The most successful guy on the planet at that time, he comes and he proposes to her. And she says, no, I'm sorry, I'm already engaged. He's like, huh? Who are you engaged to? She goes, I've promised Abu Darda that I am not going to marry anybody except him. I'm going to marry him in Jannah. So this Muawiyah, he's like, okay, fine, that's fine. So what I encourage you to do then is stick to what you're good at. You know, people are going to benefit from you. 
that you know you're not going to get married but that's fine because you as a woman your worth isn't defined by a man so what if you're not married but you've chosen to stay away from sin fast as abundantly as you can and you know inshallah may things work out for you so this Muawiyah, again, his caliphate, he, pa he, he passed away, his son came on board, his son came on board, his son came on board. Like I said, the very last Khalifa that she saw in her lifetime was um, Abdul, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan. And this Abdul Malik, you know, who was the great-great-grandson of this Muawiyah who had proposed to her, he was like the favorite, not the favorite, but he was such a good student of Umm Darda al-Sughra. Just imagine this now. She is a very, very old woman, so old in fact, that the Khalifa of the time, he would come to her gatherings in the mosque in Damascus, he would sit and he would learn from her, and then when it was the time for the Maghrib Adhan to happen, he would have to get her up. And because she was so old, he would have to carry her, meaning she would lean on him, on his arms, and he would have to walk her slowly to the entrance of the women's side, and then she'd go in and then he'd go her way. This was Umm Darda al-Sukhra, that the legacy that she created, you know, as a young woman, she was engrossed in the deen of Allah and in the knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge. And she, because knowledge itself is not enough, it is not enough, but because she had the God-fearing and the God-consciousness within herself, people began to love her and her reach extended so far. She has, you know, over hundreds of male students, let alone female students, that would come and sit with her and learn from her. The students mentioned regarding her that whenever we wanted to remember Allah, we would come to the gatherings of Ummud Darda al-Sukhra. Just imagine that, you know, when you're busy, like how many times have we ever thought that, that we're busy in our lives and in our work and we're working and studying and, you know, all of this dunya, 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 wedding season and then this season and then that season. When have we ever thought, you know what, I need to refocus. I need to go and I need to remember Allah. And when we do that, those of us that have ever done that, who, who do you go to? Who comes to your mind that, you know what, I, I need some spiritual fulfillment. I need to boost my iman. Where shall I go? She was a person that would come to the minds of the people that you want to remember Allah. Oh, let's go to Umm Darda. Let's sit with her. Let's learn from her. So this was, you know, the life of Umm Darda al-Sughra. And there is so much to say regarding her that because of time now, I'm going to have to end on one narration regarding her. I mean, choosing which narration will take me a few seconds. So let me just decide what, what we're going to end on. Okay, maybe this. Umm Darda al-Sughra, rahimahullah ta'ala, she mentioned once to her students that, you know, they were just sitting in, in a gathering of dhikr and as a tangent, as a side point, she said to them, that, do you not know that when a person passes away and they are placed in their coffin or on their bed, the sarir, do you know what this person says? And they're like, no, we don't know. What does this person say? And she was like, this dead person whose soul has just been taken out and is now lying lifeless in front of you, they are screaming out to the people around them that, Ya Ahli, Ya Jirani, that, oh, my people, all oh, my friends, all oh, my neighbors, 
Do not let this dunya deceive you the way that it deceived me. That you're there and you're watching this person and they are now, the, their soul is trapped in a body that can no longer move. Their soul is trapped in a body that can no longer communicate with you. And if they could, what would they say? That all oh, my people, my loved ones, my friends that are there now witnessing my janazah, don't let this dunya deceive you the way that it deceived me. Because this dunya is more bewitching than Harut and Marut. Harut and Marut are those you know, angels that came to teach magic. In Surah Baqarah, the story is mentioned that this dunya will come and is going to tempt you from here, going to tempt you to want a bigger car and a bigger house and, you know, nicer skin and, you know, a better degree and this and this and this and this. And it won't ever stop because once you've got it, that won't be enough. Now you're going to want more. Then you're going to want more. Then you're going to want more. The dunya is designed like that. The dunya knows that's a, that's a sad part. That shaitan knows his purpose. The dunya has been created with these temptations knowing its purpose. And shaitan and the dunya are doing their job better than we are. Because Allah tells us in the Quran that the shaitan is aduwwu mubin. That this shaitan, he's a clear enemy to you. Not even a hidden enemy that stabs you in the back. But a clear enemy, he's telling you that I am not your friend. Whatever I am telling you to do, don't do it because it's gonna, you're going to end up with me in Jahannam. He's a clear enemy to you, but we still can't resist. We still can't resist his, you know, soft words and his, you know, promises and his temptations. He's doing his part and he's winning his job. If you look at, you know, potential, he's at like 200%. Because what he was there for, he's doing it. But what we are here for, we're not. We are falling so, so short because we are becoming, you know, bewitched and enchanted by, you know, the... the glitter and the glamour of the dunya but Allah tells us that look don't let it deceive you this gold and the silver and the lights and the cars and the fame and the beauty this is not going to last and Umud Darda is telling her students that you know this dead person he's screaming out he's screaming out that this dunya is more bewitching than Harut and Marut and my family the family that is there for you and these friends that are there and sometimes your friends are giving you a nudge in the wrong direction and sometimes they're telling you to, oh, you know, just pluck your eyebrows, you're going to look a bit nicer or just take your hijab off, your hair is so nice or just, you know, talk to this guy, it's only, you know, text. You know, these friends and these family that are giving you these little prods in the wrong direction, this dead person is telling on his deathbed that, you know, these people, these loved ones, they are not going to argue for you in front of Allah, in front of Al-Jabbar, the king of kings. And Allah says regarding himself, that you know on that day when the earth is rolled up, Allah is going to take all of what you can imagine in the solar system, all of that and beyond. You know, in one, you know, in his right hand, the way that befits his majesty, he's just going to roll it all up like it's nothing, like it's just like a piece of cloth. And then Allah is going to say, that Anal Malik, that I am the king, where are the kings of the dunya? I am Jabbar. I am the king. Where are the kings and the queens of this dunya? That in this dunya you thought it was okay to go around slandering people and hurting people and oppressing people and judging people and being harsh to people and doing all of this. But where are you now? When the dunya on the earth are flung and rolled up like they're nothing, like you are nothing, where are you now? That you thought you could, you know, oppress your children and your daughter-in-laws and say whatever you wanted and get away with it. 
And in the dunya you did. But where are you now? Where are the kings today? Where are the queens and the princesses today that you thought you were? And these people, Umar Dada is telling her students, they're not going to argue for you. Because on that day that Allah is going to be more angry than he has ever been. And the prophets, they testify to this. That on that day when people are running around like, you know, like, like drunk people because they don't know what's happening and they never anticipated it and they never prepared for it. That on that day, Allah is going to be so angry that the creations of heavens and earth have never ever seen him that angry. And on that day, your loved ones and your family and your friends and your social media followers aren't going to argue for you. They're not going to say, oh Allah, no, you know what, she was a good person. No, 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 she, her heart was good. They are going to be arguing against you. Though Allah, you know, on this day, on the 23rd of February 2016, she swore at me, she backbited me, she slandered me. They are going to be there against you. A mother is going to turn against daughter, father against son. Your own unborn children are going to be nowhere to, to be seen. So on that day, Umar Darda is telling that, look, this dunya that we spend our whole lives working towards, that, you know, we want the good car, we want the good job, and we want this and we want that. Fine, within the limits of the Sharia, do what you can, achieve your potential. But the way that she lived her life, knowing that her worth as a woman came from what? Her obedience to Allah. And then after that as what? As a teacher, as a student, as a scholar, to whatever capacity, you don't need to become alimas and muftiyas and whatever. But you need to be a student of knowledge in some capacity. Because a student of knowledge can never die. And that's the reality. That when you become a teacher and you teach somebody the alif bata, then this person goes and they go and learn how to pray salah. Or when they go and they learn how to make a dua, you are still alive in their prayers. You are still alive in the recording of the angels. Because whatever you taught them is now being recorded for you whilst you're dead and gone. And then whatever they go to teach other people is still keeping you alive. This is the concept of sadaqa jariya. This is what it means to be a teacher. And there is nothing that you can do better than to tread the path in the seeking of knowledge. And Umar Darda Sughra was a testimony to this. Our own Prophet said, that I have only, only been sent as a teacher. That is my purpose of creation, to come and teach mankind. So if you want to take a part in that portion, you want to you know, have this link with the Prophet join a class, join a course. And I'm not saying it has to be at a sufa. I mean, obviously I'm saying it should be at a sufa, but join wherever, but learn something and then teach something. Like I said, even if it is, alhamdulillah, even if it's the alif bata, these are the foundations of our religion. People like Umud Darda Asukra, they dedicated their whole lives between different cities and different mosques and different houses to learn knowledge because they understood that this knowledge is what is going to keep us alive. This knowledge is something that we can argue in front of Allah with. Though Allah, you sent the Prophet as a teacher and your Prophet said that the scholars, the people of knowledge are the inheritors of the Prophets. Though Allah, we tried our best to take a share of this inheritance. We tried our best. We, we, as hard as it was, as hard as the tribulations were, as you know, people said things to us and people did things to us, but we never stopped. 
we learnt and we became better and then our children became better and this is the legacy of the likes of Umm Darda al-Sughra and Umm Darda al-Kubra and Abu Darda and all of these Sahaba that came as teachers, that came as students because without them we wouldn't have the understanding of Allah and the Prophet the way that we do. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us from amongst those who take a, a great and abundant share of inheritance from the prophets. That whatever we learn and whatever we seek, that Allah uses that in our favor on the day of judgment and allows it to be a means of sadaqah jariyah for us and facilitates for us a path to Jannah because of our efforts in the dunya. وآخر الدعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين جزاكم الله خير for attending and for listening